I hope you're prepared for this episode's guest. Someone known as the lead singer of post-hardcore band Frodus. Someone known as the face behind synthwave project Tanimira Midnight. Someone known as a mysterious tribalisk. And some cats will know him as Cat Beats. Shelby Sinker, punk rocker from Washington DC turned lo-fi beat maker, joined me to talk about everything from his mind-boggling board game Zoneplex to artificial intelligence. Don't you also wish you had cats you could play lo-fi beats to? Shelby is also the head of Swedish Columbia Records, a record label based in Gothenburg, Sweden, which housed a number of extremely talented artists, and you should absolutely get stuck into it if you like Shelby's work. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Shelby. Exactly. What? Uh, Bright Brighton. Do you know where that is? It's yeah. like oh, yeah. Oh, okay. The, it's like the mod capital. Yeah. Well, it was the mod. The was the mod capital. Played a show there at a dive, kind of a divey bar in yeah. the nineties. What's it called? Do you remember? I could look. I have a like an old HTML file. I can pull up i feel like that was a very strange pairing too if it was that that show let's find out okay right yeah, i don't remember many venues from the 90s but it was the free butt <laughs> never heard of it. funny name it must have been before my time <laughs> yeah may 2nd 97 that's funny i thought i played oh in Manchester, we played with the day after. That's the show I remember. What, what band was that with? That, that was this was with Frodus, and we were touring with a Swedish band called Nine. Uh, I remember the, the day, the day, two days after that, we played in Manchester with Voorhees in State of Filth, like proper crusty, <laughs> drunk punk British bands, but they were very nice. They were very funny. They, they enjoyed us. Um, I want to read off a list here. Um, so, Frodus, The Jerks, Loki and the Improbable Solution, Mancake, The Cahedron, the, the I, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce how it's, how it's right. said, The Cassettes, Frantic Manis, Mantis, Mana Wasp, Triobelisk, Travelers of Time, Tanimura Midnight, Cat Beats. Is there anything I'm missing out? Or was that? Well, I guess guitar for El Huervo. Yeah. Well, a... I mean, like, I'm more like your main projects, things. I guess. I mean, a lot of those were kind of one-offs. I would say the... Mm. Okay. Mm. Or like uh, side project things. I mean, Triobelisk was my main electronic thing for a while. Mm. When I was started to create more electronic music and then it kind of shifted to Tiny Mirror Midnight and Cat Beats currently. But I, w- I would say the core would be Frodus, the Cassettes, Triobelisk, you... Cat Beats, and 
with travelers of time actually oddly enough the hmm. the longest spanning project you you started that during Frodus, didn't you travelers of time yeah like in 94 i believe wow is that still going or is... it's still going we actually recorded a new album this year we hadn't done anything for five years or something my partner jim is kind mm. of this is genius composer guy lives in chicago but he grew up in the dc area he was the fro first bassist for frodis actually and uh we just kept this project going it would take lapses and then come back and i think the pandemic gave us a reason but what really gave us a reason is this label who in the 90s asked us to do a, a song for a tribute to the british instrumental band the shadows okay which we did a, a cover song on that compilation they asked us to be a part of their tribute to the ventures this year this last year 2020 we're like oh well we got to do it because yeah when he does comps he does he's really like he he gets it to the original artists and i was always a big surf music fan when i was learning to play guitar so it was, it's cool to hear that uh like for me when the shadows actually heard the listened to the compilation and gave little little notes on what they thought of all the covers that I was like, wow, that's pretty amazing. So the adventures one, I was like, we have to do it because the source is the source will hear it. So it'd be super fun. So that that kind of we did that song. We're like, yeah, we should uh, do some more songs, and then it just kept on going. Basically, me recording to a click, adding some maybe some a keyboard or something else, or even a, a rough drum idea, and then send it to sending it to him. He adds pretty much everything else and then back to me for an iteration and then I end up mixing it usually and the small world thing with, with Jim is he's now scoring the new game that uh, the Hotline Miami guys are doing so it's it's all uh, become very cross-pollinated is it Hotline Miami free no I, I, they're, <laughs> they're doing something different but uh, <laughs> but Jim's he has a he was an orchestra conductor at one point, right. so he can kind of write these big, big arrangements. And mm -hmm. he's very, he's versatile. He's very versatile in his composing. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So that is, I would say, that is a project that has kind of gone on the longest. Fun. Oddly, that the Shadows one was the that compilation was the first mail kind of pre-internet mail order uh recording session where we recorded the drums and guitar onto uh on the on the tape on the eight uh half inch eight track and then sent them to chicago where he added theremin played bass and did all everything else and back to us and then we mixed it so it's kind of it was the shape of things to come since now it's we were sending i don't know as of it's 10 years ago or a little more we were yeah. starting to send files to each other so strange times surely <laughs> yeah um you mentioned like surf guitar and such like um because i know it's like on was it uh the jerks and like more yeah. towards the jerks and a bit later on it's kind of a bit more surfy guitar like where, where does that influence come from 
you saying? Well, the jerks was a, a, a was a definitely a one-off thing at the same time as Travelers of Time. Just a love for like garage rock, yeah, surf rock. There, there was in the '90s. There was, I think, a pretty big revival of that stuff. Manor Astro Man from uh, Georgia, I believe. We're a pretty well-known kind of instrumental surf band. Later signed to Touch and Go, recorded with Steve Albini, I think, and all that. Kind of went a little less traditional surf, but let's say them. And there's a lot of indie surf labels, and there's a garage label from Bellingham, Washington, called Estrus. And I was like a member of their seven-inch club back in the '90s. This is during like early Frodus Frodus days. And I just, I just always loved all that stuff. Kind of at the same time of loving like DC Discord stuff. It was, mm. you know, this whole kind of '60s garage surf revival thing. I think the UK. I don't know actually. They, I don't know the. I can't think of any. But there was definitely a lot of labels happening in the UK and Spain at that time too. But like, all to my mind, I remember all the US ones. There was Sundays that did a lot of reissues of early of obscure out of print garage like the druids of stonehenge is <laughs> a notable one i remember and then you know shadows of night kind of these nice. you know nice kinks pre kind of in the, like the whole beatles era but when things were getting a little more i guess a little weird weirder for a second second there yeah the Beatles never really went. I mean, they went really far. They went the, their whole psychedelic period, but they never really had the kind of almost punk, punk aspect that the Kinks. I think production-wise, Revolution, the for the the single version is very distorted and pretty intense if you listen to it. But then I think the Kinks and some other bands were kind of taking it to another level. And then Joe Meek, of course, was pioneering kind of a weirder production style with like surf and like yeah garage and uh kind of r&b bands back then mm. i think the beatles were kind of all over the place really they went they didn't just have one style so no <laughs> they made well i heard that um uh the cassettes were quite influenced by the white album it became that way but at first it was more kind of uh I don't want to say revivalist, but more kind of, uh, I would say bubblegum 60s-ish psych mm. pop. Mm. There was a lot of bad finger being listened to and like, yeah, nothing of wings by the bassist. The The band was basically the, the bassist and the drummer who, who were being, who, who are also in Dead Meadow. Mm-hmm. So what happened why the band changed is dead metal started to pick up steam so they went and focused on that with uh the guitarist of dead meadow as a three-piece and then i just reformed the band first as a two-piece with my friend sadat who's a pakistani american musician that i'd known since the 90s he plays tabla and drums and very musical and very uh songwriter thinking drummer which is unique but we quickly just wrote a bunch of songs and ended up playing cmj the college music journal kind of a festival in new york 
whenever that was that year, 98, no, it was 2000 maybe. Don't recall the exact year with Dead Meadow. So they were just like, what? <laughs> we just left the band and you already like have all these songs. So that was a funny, funny thing. And then we kind of, it, it didn't, when we played the old song, it just didn't make any sense. It was just a different dynamic with Sadat. So then it became a bit more, I guess, rootsy. In the sense of White Album, it's it kind of became more eclectic and bluesy, but also like bringing his like classical Indian music influences, mm -hmm. playing tabla and all that. So, which was, which is a bit an era of Beatles, but we just kept on rolling with that concept. So, as yeah, we which is George Harrison's influence, I guess. <laughs> Oh, Paul McCartney, Rocky Raccoon. I guess the, the whole, yeah, definitely George Harrison. On my side, it was probably Paul McCartney. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the, the Indian classical music uh, influence. But I, there, I, there's oddly, I think, similarities with kind of open tuning blues and Indian music with like you have this when you're in an open tuning there's like this drone always happening like an open mm -hmm. g or whatever and there's a drone in like sitar music so as we actually would be playing kind of these bluesy open g tuning songs he'd be playing tablas and he'd have a a shruti box just doing a sitar drone and we we're playing live it's a cool little nice device you know like this metal box with leds you can choose the tuning and adjust the the drone yeah it was it was great it fell into place very very neatly what what is um what do you think some like the your favorite project you've been part of like what what was the most fun you had like touring and you know just recording records favorite is hard they're all kind of special time capsules based on what's happening in our lives and kind of the musical culture happening around us at the time. I mean, Frodus had a lot of interesting moments recording Conglomerate International with our friend Jonathan Krynick producing and this engineer, Bruce Kane, who oddly worked on a Rick James albums back in the day. Mm -hmm. So it's a funny, a funny pairing, but he, Bruce, he had like a very nice vintage studio, like near the airport in the DC area. And, uh, he would tell us stories of recording party all the time, like <laughs> Eddie Murphy and Rick James and weird Rick James stories. <laughs> I don't know. I think we just, why we chose him to record, to engineer the album. I think we just liked the, the kind of classic vintage thing happening there. And Jonathan was it, he worked with the, the band Trans Am at the time and he recorded a bunch of demos for us and recorded travelers of time and the jerks and was able to kind of get these really big bombastic sounds out of minimal equipment he's a very like knowledgeable audio engineer and he kind of took it to this other level oddly very a bit different in that space it was a bit more produced and colder which is what we kind of wanted to create it's a bit more of a devo gary newman-esque hardcore record at the time so i mean i just think i mean i think recording every record is 
super fun and interesting. It's like painting a new, a new picture with audio in a different space. So I can't say there's a favorite. I, li I like them all for, for different reasons. Yeah, that's fair enough. Absolutely. What's the most, like most craziest like experience you've had like on tour? On tour? Crazy. Wow. What is it? I mean, I'm sure there's plenty, but like. <laughs> I mean, I feel like a lot of times we were bringing the crazy. <laughs> Maybe Mancake was bringing the crazy because of, I don't know if you've seen YouTube videos of like VHS tapes of that. I mean, yeah. the, the singer would, who was the drummer of Frodus would come out on like carpenter stilts waving like an axe with a microphone tape to it or would come out in like this kind of crappy bear costume Jeez. <laughs> and just like we heard basically injuring himself falling into the mic his forehead bleeding and we'd be like tumbling and biting people and throwing pancakes at the crowd <laughs> so we it was it was it, that band is the drummer of Frodo singing me on guitar mike from darkest hour on bass and our friend Eric Astor, who played in this band Samuel, who now actually owns and runs Furnace Vinyl and CD Manufacturing in Virginia, a record pressing plant, him on drums. So we were definitely bringing a lot of crazy ourselves. Weird story, you just made me think of a very odd Frodo story where we broke down somewhere in, oh gosh, Wisconsin. And like off the side of the road and we just we just this is before i don't think we had triple a this is 90s i almost want to say 96 95 90, like very we're very young and some guy just pulls up and picks us up and is uh he's like we're, he has a tow truck like oh we broke down he's like oh i'll help you out tell you in town and you can stay at our place and it was a bit uh he was very nice and kind of would say a bit lewd comments when he was driving around. We're like, okay, this is weird. And then going to stay in this, yeah. I don't think it was a trailer, but almost a trailer. And it was a bit backwoods. And then it just got weird with like the, his like girlfriend saying the next morning, like, I was like, I'm going to put a hex on you. Like to like the drummer, like and you came to me in the night and some, my dream or like, it's really weird. It's starting to get really weird. We're like, oh, we got to go. This is super weird. But he was the mechanic. I was super chill the whole time and just <laughs> driving us around wherever we were in Wisconsin Jeez. saying, uh, I don't know, lewd, lewd comments about people <laughs> that you'd observe that was it was weird in the sense is we you, time slowed down and you're like i think we're gonna get out of this and i think we're gonna be alive <laughs> but this is kind of nuts like this is yeah, very strange that, that must have inspired like some songs or like some kind of no <laughs> I, think, I think we just almost like blanked it out i mean there's so much america is just strange Especially yeah. at, late at night. I mean, now it's now it's probably still strange late at night. In the nineties, like ending up at these Denny's and like, you know, with Denny's is like a kind of a chain of late night diners, mm -hmm. if you're not aware. And uh, 
just some of them were like so chaotic. Like there is like, is there even any a manager running it right now? Cause people are just like serving themselves like bizarre things like that. Or like sitting at a table and all of a sudden a guy in a wheelchair pulls up and like tells us like this terrible racist joke and then like backs off going backwards in his wheelchair. And we're, and, and we're just all looking at each other like what just happened? Like very Twin Peaks, strange America moments, surreal yeah. America. What have you are you familiar with like the DC punk scene now? You, is it like is there much presence, do you think? This not, there seems to be. I, I follow uh I still am in touch with friends from DC and music journalist Chris Richards from who writes for Washington Post now and enough people post about different local new bands, especially he's always on top of it. I kind of tip my like dunk dunk my feet in there and see what's going on so it's still vibrant for sure i mean maybe not as big but i think it's relative it comes and goes it probably would be bigger if people could go to shows more mm. at the moment but be interesting to see post pandemic like what new things and new energy comes out of all that yeah definitely do you, do you ever go go back and listen to old like Frodus records or any old old stuff you you've done? Sometimes, not yeah. not too much, but sometimes I kind of want to take the time capsule and go back there and relive those memories. Mm -hmm. yeah, I suppose it's more about the memories, isn't it? Like brings back like a certain feeling. A feeling, and also I, I remember recording it. So it brings mm. back like a a specific space in time, I would say. Mm. And it, I mean, even like El Huervo stuff, I remember when we did, recorded some of the guitar parts, or if I did them alone. For a lot of the early, uh, earlier stuff I worked with him, he almost conducted me. He would like be in a little room, I'd be recording straight into the computer and he would be kind of be like, like literally moving his hands up in the air, like bring up the intensity here, bring it down. <laughs> so that was when, neat. When did you it, first start working with, with him? Oh gosh, I guess it was, is Daisuke might've been one of the first. Hmm. It's when he started to have more guitar to look at hmm. the discography to remember, but I feel like it might've been that. When, when he did do not lay waste to homes mm. yeah so we're kind of yeah that's that's right at the beginning that's kind of right at the beginning 2012 that was released was that before yeah, prior swedish to Columbia. prior to that well no it was during swedish columbia prior to that was to st to stop you must die which is there's no guitars on that Mm. And that's that's actually the album that I really I don't know it's I'm, I really like that one it just brings back just memories of meeting Nicholas and kind of that time period mm -hmm. it's a bit less it's a bit less dark than his later stuff yeah which yeah, is that, nothing wrong with being dark but it just it's just very different mm. so it was for it was pretty early on I would say I started playing with him 2000 12 2011 probably 
Well, do you prefer like playing like guitar sessions or like doing your own stuff? With guitar, with with guitar, yeah. or in general, I, I mean, I, I like both. I think both. Like when you when like Nicholas wants a guitar part, it's just like you kind of enter a space and it's pretty low stress. Like it's not about having to complete anything. It's just, what can I do to make this, the ideas that he has in the song, like lift, lift it up. Mm -hmm. It's really, I think I actually listened to the interview he did with you. I think he said something about spice or talking in food <laughs> metaphors, but it's adding the, yeah. you know, that we, I think yeah. we'd say butter, me and him in Swedish. Yeah, no, it's good to like collaborate and just like bounce off each other for sure. Like, yeah, I mean, but with him, like nowadays, it's just I, I just do a take and then he likes it and all right, <laughs> he'll he'll edit it sometimes, like move things around even. Yeah, yeah, kind of almost not recreate a new part, but sometimes if he hears something else, but mm. it's just what what he needs. But it would be nice to uh, it would be nice to do something in a room and live with him again, actually, since we literally haven't done that since. I guess we did it over Skype with Rust, but that was still like over five, like, I don't know, that's like eight years ago or whatever. <laughs> what did you, did you work on um, a thing, a thing with others, it was the last project? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm all over that one. Not on Samband. Oh yeah, that's that, that the, his com his yeah. collaboration with Rat Vader, but mm. definitely on Feathers. Feathers is very, very live in the sense that it's has Dennis playing bass on it, mm -hmm. all over the whole thing. So it's I never played with them live, but when they did play live for a little bit, it was just live. It was live bass and the backing tracks and Nicholas playing some live keys and percussion. So it, I think it captures that that time period of when they were like writing and playing live more. Mm. So it's different. It's I would say it's a it's a departure from a bit from the approach on Vanderier, which is more of a kind of produced on his own. You know, not as not much outside of aside from like me and another guitarist. Yeah, so Vander is more, more like hip hop inspired, I guess, or trip hop. Yeah, I think that's the one he was saying in your interview. Felt like he was giving the fans what they wanted. Mm, mm, mm. I'm not sure if that, if that. I need to look at this track listing. <laughs> I guess a little bit with like rust and things like that. There's definitely some. I would say, I wouldn't say Daisuke part twos, but kind of continuations of that kind of thinking. But mm -hmm. I, I, I definitely think he went in other territories too, in these longer songs and kind of more ambient kind of intros and stuff. So mm -hmm. it's cool. Um, Zoneplex. So I, I didn't know about this at all until I started like, mm -hmm. researching on you actually. Um, so it's a pretty mad idea, isn't it? Can you just 
like roughly explain like what it's about. That is crazy. Maybe I'll turn on the light over here. Hold on. That's it. And the little cafe lights here. <laughs> well, Zoneplex is a pretty crazy board game that came up with my friend Kenny Jacobson when we were we just went hard into board games kind of the same kind of similar time actually Nicholas was doing a lot of board games and I don't know if he was, he was playing a lot of board games with his uh collaborator Eric who they worked on Else Heartbreak video game together with and Eric's a game designer hmm. and we just had an idea to make a game and within our game, game group and then we just started to flesh flesh out this idea and test it amongst all our friends and everyone we know we knew and it was pretty early in the kickstarter era where you didn't need kind of a, a market ready game with you know pre-reviews already done and everything like you do nowadays you could kind of have a half baked idea that's mm -hmm. good enough to get the backing to people to help you propel it to reality i think that you can't really do that anymore with kickstarter at least for games but it was it was just this crazy mashup fantasy like dungeons like space dungeon crawl like throwing in all sorts of kind of sci-fi ideas like ian m banks you know that author's kind of grandiose space operas you know some of his fantastical approaches to science fiction and the, like Jodorowsky's Dune and like mysticism and, and kind of far out like interdimensional space theme but in the end it is like you're kind of dungeon crawling in this pyramid and there's a bit of, I guess a bit of Lord of the Rings in there too in the sense of you have to control this the one ring to rule them all you're just trying you're trying in this in this case it's like reverse role Lord of the Rings. Like everyone is just trying to get like you're everyone's basically Sauron. Yeah. <laughs> like you're all friends and then everyone wants to get the ring and win at the end. So it's kind of a it has a forced mechanism of just like turning on everyone because it's a hard game. You have to work together mm. to kind of uh, level up within this pyramid or dungeon, you whatever you want to call it. But at the end, that last moment it forces you to turn on other players, to like let them cool. fall, to not help Love them. That. So you have <laughs> to get the ring. But it's a game that I would say doesn't work for all game groups. And the, what I wish I would have known after the fact. Like it, I felt like it was very adopted by the best reviews came from like role playing gamers who would take a pause from like their long campaigns and play our board game mm. and i felt like oh well that's probably who we should have marketed it towards other than like kind of like indie board gamers at the time and then we also got panned by a a prominent board game blogger and that kind of right. ruined it for us and then we ended oh. up just <laughs> donating to goodwill well it was a strange moment. I was at a board game convention. And I was, I recognized them. I'm like, hmm, I should give them the game. And my gut feeling, literally, it was like, don't do it. And I did it. Right. 
and then it just it just destroyed the game. It's like if we would have not had a review by him, it would have done better. But the fact that we got a bad review by him just like buried it. Uh, what, what what did he like about it? I mean, I I think I think initially he might have thought we were a bit strange. He made an offhand comment that we we're a bit cultish in our robes. I think he's a bit more conservative, and uh, so that's starting off on the wrong foot. And just I don't know. I just think the impression of it, and maybe because, like I said, it is a game that is very dependent on the board game group, and it's hard to judge it if you're just looking at it systematically by yourself and not actually playing it and mm. having like that uh playing it with your comrades and like turning on each other like feeling like if you just kind of look at it from a systematic standpoint it's i don't think it's it yeah you can you could get the impression like oh, okay this is i don't think this is good or if you you know you kind of play it by yourself or whatever it's more about the people interactions so, I mean, I don't think, I don't want to say he was wrong, but I think my gut was right saying that he didn't need to review it and that it should have gone kind of in a more open interpretation world and probably towards role-playing gamers opposed to the standard uh, board, indie board gamers. With that in mind, like, I think if I were to do it again, would you know expand it with some more role actually some rpg elements maybe yeah playing gaming elements because we did have these characters you can choose we could have added we could have added some uh traits they would have and kind of add this like rpg element but i mean it is what it is no regrets you know it's a life life lesson yeah. and, and it's cool yeah. that it exists and the people that enjoy it enjoy it and then the rest of the hundreds of copies that are at goodwill in southern california hopefully someone's picking it up and enjoying yeah. it too i tried looking at a copy but it's like there's people reselling it for like crater prices nah you can get it for like 20 bucks i'm sure well not here but yeah it's not mainly in, in america so like paying like for shipments to get from america to england oh yeah that'll, <laughs> that'll get you Actually, I can probably send. I have somewhere in my basement. <laughs> I'd love copy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll look. Yeah. And we didn't. We did actually do a follow-up expansion afterwards. Yeah. Which I I did think cleaned up a lot of the issues that the game had previously. It balanced it a little better. I mean, we call it a, an expansion. In reality, it's a patch. <laughs> <laughs> in an analog manner. Yeah, <laughs> well, the, the, I mean, board games are pretty popular now. Have you ever thought about doing another one? Anyway, I mean, it's so much work, like mm. more than making a record or anything else. And yeah, yeah, can imagine. I don't. I just don't have the energy right now with like two kids and job and mm. doing my music stuff. And not now. I mean, I I have like I have a card, like a very kind of basic card game. That I've had done for a few years that I hope to put out at least on an on-demand uh, yeah. fashion. Like it's just since it doesn't require a lot of pieces, so hope to do like, that. That's we actually actually many years ago we showed it at a art gallery in uh, 
in Los Angeles, me and the artists, it was like they were having an exhibition, like tying, pairing up game designers with artists. And most people did video games for this exhibition, but we did this board game based on like the, the Chinese Sasquatch, the Yaren. It's basically, it's a cat, cat and mouse game where you have, you have limitations of swapping these terrain tiles and the climber has to get to the top and the Yaren has to capture the climber. The climber's looking for some like magical herb at the top of the mountain. And this artist is from Taiwan. So he was really into the mythology of it all. And yeah, it's, it's beautiful, like the wooden version. But then he, he illustrated like a consumer version. So yeah, I should do that. It's actually been lingering yeah. for like six years or so, for seven years at this point. Well, what, what's the process of it? Is it like nearly finished or what's... It's, I mean, the artwork's done. It's all PSD. Like, yeah, I have all the files. It's oh, just okay. a matter of me uh, going to downloading the Game Crafter templates or... I believe those are, that's the on-demand company that does it and mm. just getting it up there. I was thinking, I mean, there was a time where I was thinking of kickstarting it, but then like, you know, kids and <laughs> everything kind of went... <laughs> Um, you've produced a couple of video games as well, haven't you? Um, video? Do you still do that now? V video games or, or... Um, like develop develop video games? I right? have I, I I I did the artwork and helped design try try triobelisk with with Eric Sveding for I iOS. Right. But that was that was super fun and that kind of tied into the whole triobelisk and zoneplex worlds i would say that's my music persona which had a lot of mythology and kind of went into these other realms but not since that game i had i had a cat cat beats game idea that in a sketchbook but hasn't happened maybe it will happen i don't know if i have the the focus to make a game on my own. Well, I feel like Nintendo could be interested because it's, it's very, it's very like Nintendo inspired, isn't it? Cat Beats. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, definitely Nintendo inspired. I, I mean, I had the game idea I had for that was more of an iOS thing, in a almost like this uh, cafe management thing game. What meets? <laughs> if you ever played the game Tapper in the eighties? No. All it is is you go. It's like a bar, and all these like patrons come, and you have to like go to the different bars and like the literal arcade game had like a thing where you pull to pour the drink, you and then you like <laughs> throw the drink That's down cool. the bar, and you go to another thing. To, it's kind of a combination of that and like a cafe management thing. But ah, maybe one day. Right now, I feel like I guess like a true Piscean. Not that I'm that much into astrology, but I, I fall into those those traits. I kind of just go with the flow. Mm. So things well, are opening up a certain way. I'm like, okay, well, this makes sense. So cat beats vinyl, cat beats cassette, and kind of build build from there. Is that the main focus in cat beats now? Is that kind of your? You're just it's, kind of focus on that. Seems to be what's coming out of me, mm. which. For, I mean, it, it was a kind of initially like a, a therapy thing, like 
the news of the world and <laughs> everything being so weird as I'd find the nice solace kind of making something very childlike and simple and not on a computer, like using the op one mm. sequencer sampler. I wouldn't say a sequencer, but sampler and synthesizer to create like the core of the tracks, literally sitting on this same balcony with my cats a couple of years ago. <laughs> and then, so where the name came from? Was it just you? Yeah. You were playing music with your cats. <laughs> playing music with my cats, and I, I think nice. it was inspired by. There's a Japanese artist, Tofu Tofu Beats, or maybe no, not Japanese. I think it's just a lo-fi artist called Tofu Beats. Mm. And I was like, ah, cat beats. So I also thought heartbeats, yeah. cat beats. <laughs> I came from there, and surprisingly, no one, no one had that. So. Yeah, that's pretty actually. simple, it quite simple popular. name. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my initial idea was basing, creating kind of lo-fi, lo-fi beats, but with like a very, this Beatles psychedelic thing to it. All right. Which I, I, some of the Cat Beats songs do have that. Like I have kind of these Boom, boom, bass guitar lines and like a mm. mellotron sound i mean it, via cat beats it becomes a bit more trip hop like this song uh i thought it was an acorn but it was a little guy it kind of has mm. this like creepy kind of portishead thing happening but it's uh, for me it's kind of coming from you know this beatles idea but the even the newer stuff that i haven't released yet is definitely even going further towards this initial idea I had with even more Mellotron and stuff like on top of the beats. But originally I, I sketched down, I wanted to, the whole project was going to be called Frodo, Frodo Lives <laughs> based on that graffiti that people would write in this. That was the thing in the sixties right. and the Hobbit got really popular and right. hippies would spray paint like Frodo Lives. <laughs> that was just a thing. Like I think in it, and I like the sentiment of it. It was like, you know, it, it, was, it was a countercultural thing, like kind of being about like going to, you know, the simpler life and rebelling of like what's happening in the world. It's like, mm. it's, let's be hobbits. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think some hippies, and I mean, in the UK, like hold Glastonbury, like the mm. myst mysticism around the whole Glastonbury scene. Yeah, it's probably dead now. I think there's hippies aren't so very frequent. <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I still think the, I still think Glastonbury has like, its yeah. holdouts of kind of the the mystics. Yeah, a little bit in a way, I guess. Well, I guess old school hippies probably more than anything. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, the whole sentiment was tied in with that. So originally I was going to call it Frodo Lives, and then I was like, yeah, then. Then it just became cat beats on its own. It wasn't it didn't stick to that concept as much, but it was a good it was a good way to mentally like think about what I wanted to do. You know, and it and essentially does connect a lot of things that I like from like that I experimented mm -hmm. with in the past musically. Yeah, because it was um Joe Lolly's bass. Yeah, was but I, I still use it. Yeah, it's a just a very cheesy like honer headless like 80s looking bass mm. kind of the copy of the steinberger bass 
but it sounded it, they, and it was used for in their van just when hmm. he was just because it's easy it doesn't take up a lot of space just to like jam while you're going to the next show and i just bought it off joe for like a hundred bucks nice. i was <laughs> like i don't know it sounded good and i think uh I don't know. In a way, maybe it like helps focus the project. I'm like, huh, Joe's bass, and think about kind of the low end. I wouldn't say like consciously like how he thinks about it, but like I think that when I did Decahedron and Joe played bass on that record, like I definitely was became very aware of how he approaches music. Mm -hmm. how, how do you guys meet? Joe through Dead Meadow, who I recorded who I ended up recording their album. So <laughs> the cassettes, uh, before the, cass the cassettes and dead metal were existing at the same time. And then they had a different drummer than the cassettes. This guy, Mark and Mark, I recorded the first two albums that when Mark was in it. And then when Mark left the band, that's kind of when the cassettes, that incarnation of the cassettes ended since then the cassettes drummer joined dead metal. So we were sharing bassists at the time. Yeah. And basically, basically, the cassette drummer migrated to Dead Meadow, and then that band continued in that form for a while. Oddly, the band is Dead Meadow still around, and they're back to the original lineup with Mark. All right. Wow. And they're in California. But um, yeah, I just recorded those albums, and Joe had a label at the time. He put out uh, Spirit Caravan, which is members of The Obsessed, the stoner rock and a heavy band from maryland mm -hmm. so he had his boutique label at the time called tolata and he just wanted to do the dead metal records for a local dc band and then it just fell into place if fugazi was taking a pause and i just asked him if he wanted to help us finish some songs with decahedron mm. and then even weirder i recorded in his house's basement on fugazi's like open real eight track setup i recorded i think if not the only like one of the only john peel sessions not recorded at bbc really <laughs> yeah which is the dead meadow session the, which the dead meadow peel sessions so that was that was pretty stressful having to do that with it in then in like a night or whatever the mix recording it and mixing it but i was happy that john peel himself was like love those period drums like he he liked the <laughs> the drum recording which is nice was he was he there at the time like john peel was not there but he broadcasted it and then commented like all right okay. you know yeah. like he was yeah. uh nano loop um because I, I was uh like was like the, that game boy music you made was that like the, the yeah. first experimentation with electronic music do you think yeah i would i would i guess first i want to say say a, ser a little more serious experimentation like i'd dabble with my dad was a jazz pianist not as his trade when we lived in the u.s it was his trade kind of in the 60s in the 60s but it's still there'd be synthesizers and midi hmm. boxes in his little uh, music room that i'd dabble with but i guess this was when i wanted to really i just like just coming from the retro gaming background and loving all that and the fact that there was a software and a cartridge 
you can make music on a Game Boy. I was like, this is perfect. And especially for going on tour, mm. I could sit there and make my little bleeps and bloops. So that's when I, I jumped into trying to create something, kind of tapping back the like, youthful memories of 8-bit sounds. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's like a great thing to have, like a little tiny like portable synth, like any kind of music machine. Because I've got like a little Korg Volker Beats. It's like the, mo the mm -hmm. most fun you can have with like any instrument. Because you can, you can yeah. take it anywhere. You can just like wait for your train, play some beats. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's super yeah. fun. I mean, that's why I like, like the Op yeah, 1 exactly. and yeah. stuff. But yeah, from there, from there, I, I just went to... I delved even more deeper in electronic music and then kind of jumped to Ableton Live. Like I, 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 I use different software that have these like MIDI capabilities, like digital performer and whatnot mm. prior to that. But for me, making electronic music with like discovering the clip view in Ableton, I felt like that felt where you can loop, make little loops of your parts and then kind of play them like they're always in sync and you can play them. You can combine as many as you want and like jump around on your, on your grid. For me, that's when it felt like the most creative because music software always had this, this engineer mindset of kind of, you see the beginning and the end. And I think there's a level of like stress there. It's like, I need to complete this thing because it's this lit left to right linear thing. Yeah. But when you're in clip view in Ableton, it was more just like, I can. I'm just playing, I'm just in this space. Mm, mm. It's like like charming, you know. Just yeah, definitely. Charming. And I think that's what made me really dig it. Yeah. I mean, Nano Loop. It, it's more. It's just a step sequencer. So it's you. You're still. You're still. You're definitely jamming with your loops mm. in that sense. But Ableton was the one that really made me kind of jump into that stuff even more mm. oh. so na nano loop it's very it's, i guess it's like these germans <laughs> german programmers yeah. <laughs> taking me down that path nano loop from germany and then ableton also from germany yeah it's pretty crazy design just like design a cartridge like back then to like replicate a synthesizer because it was it was it literally all these sounds like where did the sounds come from was it like it's from the Game Boy, like yeah, from the chip. Just the Game Boy, was it like different games? No, just accessing the sound chip and oh, okay. Game Boy right. or Game Boy Advance. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So that's it. Hmm. So of, of course they were they were used in in games. Yeah, if they're they get whatever access that chip, but I, no, I feel like Nano Loop like abstracted it and it really nice way mm. and now it's like baked in software for that analog handheld device you've seen that thing uh no that this like company analog 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 <laughs> they do these reissues of of like consoles like a turbo like a pc engine or turbo graphics 16 or genesis or whatever they right. make these new versions yeah they like officially license new versions with like that will play the cartridges has HDMI and has like this very true 
way of playing back the retro games from their original sources yeah. and they have a handheld that i think it i don't i don't think it, it's not out yet or it came out and it sold out very quickly the first batch which can play any handheld you can just get different cartridge adapters to change the adapters but the, the device has nano loop built in oh, really? yeah if you have no cartridge and turn it on it's you have nano loop in this handheld I'll say it's pretty hard to get nano loop now because it's like the website sold out and people are reselling them for like three hundred quid like mm, pretty geez. like crazy price yeah i had the I, I stupidly sold the game boy advance version which access which is a little more hi-fi than the mm. original one and i wish i still had that mm. but yeah i still have the original nano loop Used it a little bit on some cat beat stuff I haven't released. Frodus, I don't know how that's not more well. Well, it's, it's, it's definitely known within like a circle for sure. But like, I guess if you look into post hardcore, that name doesn't really pop out as much as like a lot of bands, I don't think. It's, for, I guess, for like the the deeper heads of it like influencing thrice or whatever like some of mm. these bands that would yeah call it but i think i mean i think a lot of it has to do with like <laughs> i don't know bad business decisions like contracts that maybe we signed <laughs> you know i'm serious i think i talk about this on the rigs of dad podcast right. where i mean like you can't find like our music on spotify europe it's just in the u.s because you know, our record label we released our last record that was the most notable one, like sold their back catalog to a holding company. And then it just, that company doesn't do anything with the music. It just kind of a part of like a large catalog that they purchase. Mm. I mean, ironically for Frodus, it was, you, 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 Frodus signed the last album on, what came out on Feel About Ramen, which became the label that put out Fallout Boy and kind of these, terrible emo emo bands like pop things which is fine if that's what you're into but the sad thing is the label then kind of instead of kind of uh, thinking of like their legacy in their catalog like being like like epitaph would like this is what we've done and kind of celebrating this and keeping things alive they just sold it off and literally became atlantic records and in the back catalog they sold it Oddly to oddly owned by Rhino Records, which for Frodus was always is funny because the name Frodus comes from an obscure monkeys episode, like the 60s TV show. <laughs> like, hey, hey, we're the monkeys. That's where the name comes from. And then we end up on being label mates with the monkeys as their catalogs on Rhino. <laughs> so it's very funny and weird, but you know, it's also lends to the obscurity, you know, like things happen for whatever reason you know yeah sure <laughs> i didn't have any gut, gut gut feeling about that stuff like i did with the board games <laughs> potential failure I, I had only one i guess a regret in my set in rigs of dad for in my 20 year old self always thought we should have lied to sub pop because they were going, going to sign us we should have lied and said we didn't break up but we told them the truth Oh, sure. <laughs> but 
in the end, it's also like my my eight year old self who was watching the monkeys thinks it's great that we're on the same label as the monkeys now. So, yeah, yeah. But I think that's the strange thing. As I said, like thinking back to recording sessions and kind of liking all of them for different reasons. It's because you age as a musician and you jump creatively to different things. It's it's almost like you have. I don't want to. I want to say multiple selves in this, like a schizophrenic self. But like, like you have a life that you lived, and this creative, and the world was different around you, and you kind of have this time capsule, and you have a way of thinking about that, like being even being in a band when you're eight years old. You're like, yeah, rock and roll, and being in a band. And then when you're 20 and doing it, it's like you still have that in you, but you're also not that same person. Mm. So that's why I feel like I could literally be like my eight-year-old self thinks it's great. My 20-year-old self thinks I should have lied. You know, my current self doesn't, is like, whatever. Like, it is what it is. No no regrets, you know, and everything has like a... Yeah, I mean, there's no, no such thing as a bad decision, really. Like, like every, every... No, I think I think it's worse to have a mediocre session. Like, yeah. like to be like, meh. It's almost better to be a terrible band because at least people react to it. <laughs> to make a really yeah. bad record, like, yeah. like Guns N' Roses, Chinese Democracy, like it's crazy. Like guitar solos, like what are they doing? But it's a lot more fun to listen to than probably a lot of things. They're just kind of like, Wah. at least you're like, whoa, you get a reaction. So I think it's either it's yeah, either be terrible or be. Uh, amazing yeah. i guess that's where like punk came from like it was just like people just messing around making all kinds of like gibberish on guitar and then suddenly they create a sound out of it yeah I, I think i mean that there's there's energy to that mm. you know and i think that's that's good but yeah it's yeah it's strange and amazing doing creative things and kind of jumping around and having all these different experiences with it experiences with it like i feel really lucky that i got to got to do all that stuff and continue to still do things in a very like totally bizarre like if i if i told brought my like 90s self and be like you would be making cat music that's very chill and it's like so this like almost like children's music <laughs> that people really like and like you'll be making cassettes and vinyl that'd be like cassettes still like <laughs> like since the, we'd still be making cassettes in 2020 i'd be like what are you talking about but then here i am it's like it's totally bizarre is there a temptation to like create a like a new post-hardcore band do i have a temptation yeah. <laughs> i'm no, because I always feel like it's well. Actually, me and Nathan have recorded kind of instrumental Frodo's type stuff, but it almost becomes more post rock. Mm. Like I don't want to say Mogwai, but almost like a heavier version of post rock. Mm. I mean, I get but it has like these kind of Frodo's guitar, bass, interplay things, but instrumental. But I, I think going full on and doing something like that, I don't really have a desire because the like physically, I don't think I can do it as good as my younger. If I did it, I'd have to have a lot of time to kind of train and mm -hmm. be the 
the best you know screamer better than i was before because you don't want to be i always say you don't want to be like the fat elvis like elvis at the end of his career like oh yeah. uh, there's elvis he's kind of cool but it's not the same like yeah. there's a good i think good moments of when to pass the torch for for certain things if you will but i mean the the present is so crazy and like the near future is so crazy i mean mm-hmm there will probably be a point where you can feed an AI like a Frodus record and be like, can you create a vocalist like this? And it will analyze it and then be able to. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I do think AI, like you, you can, AIs can do every job possible. I'm pretty sure. Eventually, most. But I think it'll be like anything, like it depends upon the input of the whatever the input the human has into the AI. I mean, it'll get weirder when the AI can kind of make convincingly good things by itself without, if it, if the AI develops taste, mm-hmm. you know, because it, you have to feed it an algorithm to, if you're going to teach it what's good and bad. And then it, there's so many subtleties to that. Mm-hmm. Like you are a human who lived your whole life and you've listened to all these different things and, have an idea and like and now things are so scattered and everyone kind of has their own intake and algorithmic intake of information that's what good and bad and being is it's not as it's widely shared but it's also completely fragmented and not shared because mm. you can shoot you can be getting different influences unless they much like it's less of a share less of a shared culture about like in the beatles where it's like everyone was in on it mm. You know, what were you going to say? Unless they manage to like copy the DNA of like a human onto an AI or to like create a, like almost like a human life experience for them. <laughs> That'd be pretty crazy. I think almost like an AI living through entire life within seconds. <laughs> mm, but then you have to, then there's people say like, if you create like, the vessel for life wouldn't actual life would it have would it have a soul like these are kind of intense <laughs> yeah, questions that's true like is it does it then become inhabited by life force <laughs> and kind of like totally sentient and can think of things like really like we do we don't know hmm. is if you make create the system complex enough to accommodate like whatever humans need yeah, I think people underestimate what humans actually need, like <laughs> emotionally. Like it's like the humans are it's extremely complex, mm. and it's hard to do it right. I mean, I think the a I think it'll get a while, be a while before AI could become like very convincingly human in some ways, but. And not if you, I think within parameters, it will be able to like copy like you a version of you eventually, like analyze your voice and be able to like talk just like you. Well, that's, that's know, kind of learn how you talk. That's already here, but that, that's how Jolly. Like, yeah, like there's videos of people like AIs talking like celebrities and they sound exactly the same. Yeah, like the deep fake stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're entering crazy yeah. <laughs> if, if people thought things were bad with like youtube and 
you know, strange cults and things people fall into now and like alternative news sources. It's just going to get even more confusing. It's going to be almost like you need to like not be online. Like <laughs> you need to experience reality with your own eyes. Yeah. And then like the issue will then be like, people won't believe you because yeah. they'll be like, that didn't happen. And then if you post a video, someone can deep fake change it. So it's going to be like, ah, <laughs> I mean, it, it's always cat and mouse. It's going to have to be like YouTube is going to yeah. be able to their AI, their algorithms going to have to identify these things and, and wipe them clear before they gain traction. That's the only way yeah. like they have to have, they have to be one step ahead mm. to like remove that content. Otherwise, it's going to be full anarchy. <laughs> it's like, that guy, you said that, he said that. He said, no, no, no. Ah. Yeah. Like every cipher film ever made. <laughs> Not <a> worse. <laughs> I don't think a sci-fi made, like, has, like, really shown the informational anarchy where it could go. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> and, that, and that maybe we just gave, we're giving out the idea to someone who listens to this, but... <clears throat> yeah the, i feel the most poignant but already dated sci-fi i read recently i forgot his name and on my phone but it was the british author about i'd say it's like the most william gibson-esque for this time even though william gibson is still writing books but kind of about a post-internet society like there's like a collapse and a lot in England and in New York setting, I'll tell you the name of it. But I think it really captures kind of this, an AR in marketing reality and kind of this post, like where things can head, where things are heading now and how it could culturally become super mm. crazy. But he doesn't really do, do the deep fake thing. It's called Infinite Detail. Mm. And it's by Tim Mao Mauchan. British writer and I think it might be is it Brighton there might be some Brighton in it All right. <laughs> there's definitely local a lot of local UK stuff mm, mm. it's a must read yeah, no. very fast it's a page trend you're just like blah, 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 this is crazy yeah. like, they're talking about Google and like everything's collapsing and there's all these AR things they had and... was it based off like current like life scenarios yeah, it. I would say this is like, it's like a 10, 15 years from now. Basically, there's a there's an internet collapse, and then people experience like kind of forgot about the internet, like the younger people or whatever. And then there's people find like the AR specs, and some of them can bring up things. And some this one girl tends to think they're ghosts, but it it ends up being like just recordings. Because it's like, you know, you put on a spec, the specs and then you actually see like what happened in that space. It's more complex than that, but it's, it's great. I devoured that. It was, uh, yeah, I'm big into like sci-fi novels, like Slaughtermatic. Have you heard of that? That's a great, no. crazy book I've been reading. Um, it's even hard to explain what it's about, but like, like basically this, bank robbery set in this near future where like they almost have to like plan the heist within a virtual reality 
but like they realize they're already in the virtual reality so you just have to get out of the virtual reality world it's just very like rick and morty i guess like kind of you know yeah layers like being within the world trying to get out of that world you know what's real what's not it's pretty crazy yeah, the Scottish author Charles Strauss had a th has a his old halting state books, and they're like these cop books. Mm. But but it's like there is a heist in this online game world, or in multiple online game worlds, and then like a ton of real money is stolen, and then like these cops have to figure out why how that happened and why it happened. So they're kind of flipping between this online game in reality and then like cop space that they have in their AR glasses <laughs> that bring up like forensic details about everything. <laughs> it's Scotland. It's just, it's really cool. Yeah. But kind of a same, like a bank. There's a, it's a big robbery that happens and almost this world of Warcrafty mixed <laughs> game. I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> it could happen now. Like we're getting to that level. Yeah, <laughs> How'd you find me anyway? Is it through Nicholas El Hervo or? Yeah, well, um, so I, I've been I've been following Nicholas for a while, like for like for years, and like obviously from there I started like looking on Swedish Columbia, mm. and I realised you're like the guy who owns it or like created it, and then like yeah. started look, looking more into you, and I was like, I was pretty baffled actually how much stuff you've done, like. <laughs> Because I, I just thought you were just a label owner. I didn't know you'd, like, had a whole career. Yeah, I wouldn't say like, <laughs> a livable wage career, but <laughs> definitely, like, <laughs> keep on making stuff, which is yeah, much yeah. more important anyway than, like, yeah. a livable wage as far as music, like, the creativity of it. Livable wage with music is a very new idea anyway. Yeah, if you think about the past it's like mm. even recorded music's not that old mm. so well, even, even back then was it hard to like keep food on the table no because i was younger and didn't need much lived in a group house mm. did bands and then worked odd jobs did graphic design nice. learned computer stuff i mean in the in the 90s so it was it was fine you know it's just mm. different different times yeah you sure. know different different needs i mean now with like family and stuff it's like definitely more complex but i also don't don't want to tour anymore so <laughs> it's it's totally totally makes sense but i growing up in dc definitely helped and like being around discord records definitely helped form kind of the every way the whole way i approach music and look at creativity it's like documenting a scene, documenting friends and that kind of being the impetus and like just keep on creating and the DIY ethic and just make stuff and keep mm. on, I wouldn't say, I guess reinvent yourself like based on like what's resonating with you at the time. Like I always feel like Ian Mackay is like a, who runs Discord Records and was in Minor Threat and Fugazi is a, an, an ideal role model and how an artist can age and should age like can they go in contextually with what makes sense to him at the time and like not not going backwards he's always kind of going forwards and you always have a little bit of like 
the influences of what he did before, but it's, it's always kind of a new, a new thing. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it's very, uh, it's almost jazz. I feel like mm-hmm. the way, like, kind of pushing this like a creative energy, and I, I think it's, I got it from like growing up in DC and with the label, kind of trying to bring it to the people that organically fall into fall into place like Nicholas and mm-hmm. kind of friends around there. So well, how, how long were you in DC for? Mm, good 30 plus years. Yeah. A while. Uh, 31 years. So grew up like a long time. Cause you weren't born there, were you? Or... I was born in Romania, but yeah. I grew up in, so, but I grew up in DC. Mm there since i was a kid so i don't remember anything from like romania per se yeah i i, I feel more american than i do romanian mm. you know i guess anyway that's i guess the, the initial idea of america everyone's from all these different places but they're mm. americans contrary yeah, to definitely. what's happening right now but <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i think uh yeah, I would say that definitely like informed everything, like musically, creatively. And, it's, and we're looking back on it, it's a very unique time. Like, and, I, and it's a very unique place. Like, you grow up in Los Angeles, it's a whole different. Mm-hmm. I lived in Los Angeles, didn't grow up there, but in later years of my life. But it, it's, it, it's a totally different music culture. Like, DC is such a unique bubble of like being in, in a very political, not cool town. <laughs> but to have such a vibrant music, I think it's almost like counter, it's like a counter energy to what's happening on like kind of the, the bigger level of the city historically. Yeah. So if anything, it did like really encourage creativity and music. Yeah. Sure. I even found out that the Jazz Times magazine, which was kind of the premier magazine for jazz, came from DC. I had no idea. <laughs> So there's a lot of lot of things kind of creatively happen there. I think there's a lot of creativity comes from like a load of like bored teenagers or like teenagers who are just like wanna start shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean now it seems like people younger generation generations maybe think about doing Instagram accounts maybe more than yeah, bands. But yeah. I mean, you can still be creative and do cool things there. Mm. If in the if you're trying to do photography or art or whatever, I mean, as long as you're doing it with the right intentions, mm. I guess there's always people who want to do things to be famous. But I don't know <laughs> what is punk now. Is it being a memer? I don't I have no idea. <laughs> Yeah, it's very. I think memes too popular to be punk. Memes always feel like to me like, you know, those old comedy mag, the comics like Mad Magazine, (laughs) Cracked Magazine. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's like lower, lesser versions from of those because there's like, those magazines you had to there's like an artist drawing the little cartoon and like making fun of whatever and like. There's a craft to it. The meme is just like these really poorly designed things that are like blah blah blah. But I get the idea across. But it's it's 
I guess it, it, I shouldn't say it doesn't have a crash because you have to be witty to make one that works, but mm. it's definitely not, you're not hand drawing a comic panel. Yeah. <laughs> like a magazine, but some people yes. do. So I don't know. It's just an evolution of human communication, I guess. I guess it's a very simple thing to make if you have a good idea. Like if you have a I mean, good idea for a meme, you can make it straight away. Maybe the pyramid was the first meme. <laughs> it's like uh, the gods like triangles. Uh, let's make pyramids. And then like for whatever reason, people in South America are like, yeah, the gods like triangles. Why am I thinking about this? I don't know. <laughs> and then people in Egypt, yeah, triangles. Gods like these things. Yeah. And then like everyone's making pyramids. You're like, why are these everyone making pyramids right now? That's a pretty good story. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> for the first meme i mean first meme is probably this is we're going so far off topic now i don't even know if you're gonna have this on the show uh, first meme ahead. is probably like a cave painting of a deer right <laughs> right yeah well yeah yeah definitely but oh. but a meme would have text on it surely so well pre-language i think it's mm. it's this idea of like let's celebrate this animal that we like it gives us sustenance or celebrate like your like reproductive organs because you create these make babies and it's super weird like if you're early man you know you draw a picture like i mean the uk has like a huge neolithic you know naked <laughs> naked man on a hillside right it was. yeah what is that the hill figure, the long man of Wilmington. Yeah, he has his, his whole, uh, eight, no, what the hill figures, uh, 18th century onward. I don't know, I guess it's not that old. The Schern Abbas giant, the Schern Abbas giant. It's part of the National Trust. Look this up. I will do. <laughs> At least it can't be destroyed. Because that's natural trust means if you destroy it, go into jail. <laughs> they say, yeah, they don't know when it was created, 17th century. So it's not quite, not quite uh, cave, cave paintings, but I don't know. The meme expression of the pre the, the pre language meme, mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's a good one. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how we ended up here, but um, yeah, I'm interesting. Not sure. um, but you know, I guess ex oh yeah, expressions. To... People don't do bands. People do Instagrams. That's how we. Yeah, I think that's up here. So hmm. every conversation goes surely to like complete gibberish. <laughs> good i was listening to a, a podcast about lenny kravitz out of all people and he talked about like because he was recording with rick rubin at the time the johnny cash and june carter coming like consoling him when when his when his uh mother died right. and he like wrote about it in the song and he never even met them he didn't really know them and they knew something was wrong when he came back to like the house and they just like came and like held he said he was just held by them super intense but amazing you hear the story you're like wow johnny cash june carter 
they just know they knew they've been through so much and they're just like they knew as soon as he walked through the door like something was wrong and this and when rick rubin's big mansion or whatever wherever he was staying in california Mad. it was a good it gave me like more uh not that i'd never like i, I always respected johnny cash and all that but it it, it almost made it made me like him even more like <laughs> hearing this yeah. story i was like wow that's incredible so I don't know much about his personal yeah. life. I'm not sure if he was a nice person or <laughs> he, he must have been. Johnny Cash. I think he had his troubles. I don't know if he was drink drinking yeah. or what, like what was his thing, but I mean, he kind of comes from a whole different world and different a different reality when he started music and then where he, he kind of stopped and kind of how he reinvented how it kind of kind of became prominent prominent again mm-hmm. the yeah the, the podcast that uh broken record yeah i've heard of bro- i think i've heard of it they're very good yeah like i end up listening to about artists that i don't really listen to like pop right. artists like pharrell or whatever and i'm like wow these are this is amazing like Pharrell is from, I had no idea he was from Virginia Beach, like not that far of DC. And right. he's talking about his childhood and like kind of the like very, very deep kind of like, like Virginia amusement park stuff that I went to and kind of how he, and he's, he's interesting because he's as popular as he is. He's such not a pop guy. Mm. He's so almost, I don't want to say he's definitely not DC, but very grounded He's like, he lived in LA for a little bit and he thought it was insane and he wanted to have family, like just focus on family and like do work when he has to do work. So he moved to Florida or whatever, but just how he talks is, I don't know. I had a whole new respect for him too. I was like, wow. Kind of hearing this other side of these artists that you never really, I personally don't listen to. And then like kind of, almost like you're, you're like what you talk about, just like the creative process and kind of seeing kind of having you gain like a base of respect and like almost you become curious like hmm maybe I should listen to something if like after hearing the context of how the artist thought about something because it seems like a lot of them kind of come to this point where they feel like they just the ideas just they kind of pull them they just come to the, the idea just comes to them they have like dry spells and then yeah they have times where they actually work on a lot of songs trying to like get them out of them but i think a lot of them just it just kind of comes and then yeah for sure like it's there or it's not yeah like that's definitely something like yeah you can't really just like get like straight away it's more like i feel like 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 bad experiences definitely help with that as well you know if you have like a bad experience it's usually gonna have some kind of creativity at the end like musically or you know anything you know definitely if you need to like expel those emotions somewhere you know it's 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 i feel like i even talked to nicholas about this once it's like you're just like creative vomiting or something (laughs) what you're talking about just like you're just like you gotta get out of your system like blah and then kind of whether it's something you keep as a record and on like a record or you just you just have to like do it 
I mean, it, people are lucky who can get that out that way. Because then, I mean, other people like bad experiences like alcohol or whatever could lead to. I almost feel like I had to deal with not screaming in it. When as soon as I not was not screaming in a band, I would oddly feel more anxious because I didn't have anywhere to put the energy. Yeah. Because screaming in a punk band, it's just like, you, it's all the anxiousness yeah, goes out. Yeah, yeah. And you don't get as anxious, but like, it's almost like I get more anxious the older I get because maybe, maybe I'm, I've been the same my whole life, but I don't have that. I have to find a new way to channel that, that, that energy, that sensitivity of like what you're pulling from the vibe you're getting from life, like people, cities, whatever. Mm. If you're not screaming it in a punk band, it has to go somewhere. Yeah, it's a bit more natural you know? than like, I guess, screaming in just a room by yourself. <laughs> Yeah. So now, and now it's almost like it's a little bit of cat beats, a little bit of forest walks, and <laughs> it has to like spread out. It, it was easier with punk. Yeah. <laughs> Twenty minutes, you yeah. felt great. <laughs> you know, but there, there's so much to that. It's like there's a physicality to it, and then there's emotional. I mean, maybe instead of gyms, they should just have like scream rooms. <laughs> So going to a gym, you just go into a room, you're like, ah, tense up your muscles, and then it's like meditation or take a bath or whatever. I'm surprised it's not a thing, to be honest. I think a load of people would do that. Going back to the 60s, I think there was a thing, like a movement of primal scream therapy back oh. then. <laughs> that was a thing. I think even John Lennon was doing it with like Yoko Ono on like some of those records. I think Yoko was all about it with like kind of her more exper her experimental solo records and all that. Mm. I, I feel like I've been talking to you for a long time, so <laughs> but, um... yeah, okay. Well, let me hopefully this is something interesting out of this. Yeah, no, absolutely. We jumped no. around. A, I, I have a lot of I have a big catalog, so there's a lot of time, there's a lot of jumping around. Yeah, it's hard to like, yeah. I just piece it linearly together, but yeah. Let me know if you ever want to chat again.